Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he had said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Lord, as we contemplate this message from your word, we pray that you would open our ears to it so we might hear from you. We ask, Lord, that as Pastor Dan preaches at Ebenezer this morning, that you would be with him and that congregation as well. Together, illuminate all of our hearts, Lord. Let us hear from your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've come a long way in Matthew 17, and it may seem as if we've mostly just come downhill, so to speak. We began with the transfiguration, and now we get taxation, which is a depressing topic to bring up at the best of times. It's interesting, though, to realize that in this little story, Uh, which almost seems like an afterthought compared to what's gone on before, there are themes that tie this whole chapter together. There are important things happening beneath the surface. To see it, though, you have to understand a little bit about the context here. Remember, Matthew is a tax collector, so it's not surprising that stories like this in particular would be on his radar. He knows what it's like to go up to people and ask, hey, are you going to pay your taxes? In this case, the temple tax is kind of interesting. It's a tax established in the Old Testament. Its purpose is the maintenance of the temple in Jerusalem, the two drachma tax that's levied on individuals. All that money is collected together, and that goes to maintain the temple. Uh, For those of you who don't know, two drachmas is, of course, half of a shekel. So if you have a shekel, you can pay the two drachma tax for two people with just that one coin. But in Jesus' day, this tax is a little bit controversial. Some things never change. The reason this is controversial is because the maintenance of the temple is not something everybody is on board with. There are religious factions in the land who consider the leadership of the temple to be corrupt. They feel like these uh, kind of powerful prelates who run the temple do not act according to the word of God, and they do not want their money to go to support that institution, which they see that way. So it makes sense that the tax collectors might have questions about whether or not Jesus is one of those people. Is Jesus one of those people who sees the temple as corrupt and refuses to support it with his tax dollars? So they go to Peter, who's a kind of spokesman, a a leader of the disciples, and they ask this question, does your master not pay the tax? 
Peter doesn't check with Jesus to find out, hey, what do we do on this one? He answers immediately on Jesus' behalf, yes. One word, yes, he does. He does pay the tax to support the temple. And then this interesting thing with the fish happens. Now, when you think about the fish and the shekel that comes out of the mouth of the fish, I want you to remember something that we talked about last week when Jesus talked about how just faith the size of of a seed of a mustard seed, a grain of a mustard seed, would be sufficient to move mountains. We talked about why he uses that particular image. It's because mountains are immovable. Right? He's showing how fantastic the power of faith is by, by using an image that seems impossible because nothing is impossible with God. Remember I said it's the same kind of thing that Jesus does when he's told at the triumphal entry to silence those Hosanna-singing disciples. And he says if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And now Jesus isn't just using figures of speech. He's literally sending a fisherman out to fish up the first fish at random that he pulls up to reach into its mouth and to find there a coin to pay the tax. This is unlikely to happen in everyday life. This isn't ordinarily the way people pay their taxes. Right? So again, we're seeing Jesus use this miraculous sign to do exactly this. I think there's even a, a, a similar irony if you think about it The very stones will cry out, suggest that nature is going to do something that the human beings are refusing to do. Nature is going to worship. In this case, nature is paying the temple tax for Jesus. The fish are are taking up the collection, at least one of them is, in order to pay this temple tax, which is a pretty amazing thing. Imagine being the guy who was walking along the water and didn't have his coin bag sufficiently sealed off and, and, and lost a shekel. And then it was swallowed by the fish that Peter caught and reached into the mouth of to use your shekel to pay the temple tax for himself and for Jesus. I mean, it goes to show that the things you lose, you never know how God will use them for his glory. Now, this passage, like Matthew 22's render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's passage, could help us if we wanted to do like a theology of taxation. Uh, But who wants to do that? I mean, I reflect on passages like this every tax day, April 15th, and I bitterly resent the fact that I don't know how to fish and uh, can't just collect whatever the government wants by checking random fish. But obviously, there's something more to this story going on than just tax policy and whether or not we should pay our taxes. So when we get to Matthew 22, we're going to talk more about taxation, I promise. But here... I want to think about what's underneath this story of taxation. Because really, the story of taxation here, it's about liberation, and it's about consideration. And it also underscores the fact that God's grace comes to us freely, not through obligation. So if you want a three-point outline, I just gave it to you. And, And it even sounds similar when you say it out loud. Liberation, consideration, and no obligation. If you need to write this stuff down, do it now, and it will give you a sense of order as we go along. We're going to start with liberation. Liberation, which just means freedom, because that's really what Jesus is talking about here. He uses this opportunity to teach Peter a lesson about freedom, 
the freedom that Jesus possesses, but the freedom that Peter possesses too, even though he doesn't realize it. If the sons are free, as Jesus says, then we are more than God's subjects. We are his children. If we're united to Christ, we're free from the old obligations, the old order. And this is something Peter doesn't really seem to understand. We're always seeing Peter uh, grasp these things the hard way, which is helpful because we too struggle to understand what Peter struggles with. Like, Peter answers the question. He speaks for Jesus to the tax collectors. He doesn't need to consult with Jesus. He thinks he knows how Jesus would answer this question. It has to be, yes, of course my master pays the tax. He is God with us. He is God tabernacling with us. He's all about temples. So obviously, he's going to support the temple tax. That seems clear to Peter. And perhaps it's connected to his response at the transfiguration. Remember, his instinct when he sees what he sees is to build tents, to build tabernacles. Right? He knows who Jesus is. He thinks he can answer for Jesus rightly. The problem is, for Peter throughout chapter 17, his way of acknowledging who he knows Jesus is, his way of exalting Jesus, in other words, is to make Jesus equal with things he already values. Moses and Elijah, we know they're great. Jesus is just as great as them. Let me build three tabernacles so their equality can be seen. When the reality is, in order to exalt Christ for who he is, Peter must learn to see him as greater than them, not equal to them. And if he needs to learn that lesson when it comes to Moses and Elijah, he also needs to learn it when it comes to the temple. Another way of putting this, it's as if Peter still sees Jesus as if he were a subject, not a son. And Jesus wants Peter to see that Jesus is a son, not just a subject. But Jesus wants Peter to see more than that. He wants Peter to see that he too is a son. It's not that Jesus is saying, I'm free from obligations that bind you. Jesus is saying, because you are in me, we are both free indeed. The kind of freedom that Jesus is talking about is a freedom that only comes through exaltation. It only comes when you realize that there has been a change of station and elevation has taken place. If you think about it, if you place yourself in the Old Testament economy, if you go back and imagine, I'm one of the people of God in the Old Testament, and then ask yourself, what makes me different from people who are not the children of God? It's because I am a subject of the true God. I reside in his kingdom. I don't serve idols. And that's the distinction. But in the New Order, in the New Testament, the followers of God are not his subjects merely. They are his children. Through the grace of adoption, they become his sons and daughters. There's an elevation 
that takes place, an exaltation of those people. That freedom, the freedom of sons and daughters, comes through exaltation. In Christ, the people of God are lifted above their station by the grace of adoption. The Apostle John in 1 John 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The Father's love is shown, not in the sense that He's good to His subjects, but that He is good to His children. Now, what does that liberation mean? If the sons are free, then you have been liberated from the obligations of the law. Your obedience does not earn God's favor. You already have God's favor. Paul writes in Romans 6.14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And as he speaks, for him, law and sin are connected. Which makes sense, because law is what quantifies sinfulness. Law is how we know how sinful we are. So he sees the dominion of sin as something that the law reveals. You might think of it this way. Sin, through law, used to be your daddy. That's who your father used to be. And sin is not a good father. Sin is a bad parent. It demands what you can never perform, and then it shames you for your failure. But Paul's saying sin's not your daddy anymore. You have a new father, and your new father operates differently. He does not demand from you and shame you. He adopts you, and he exalts you. He unites you to his son, Jesus Christ, and he liberates you from the dominion of sin. There is now no longer any necessity or even logic to walking under the law, to walking in shame, because your old father isn't your father anymore. Your father now is God. And if you are his sons and daughters, then you are free. That's what your freedom means. But here's what your freedom doesn't mean. That freedom does not mean that you have an unlimited license to offend. That's our second point. Our first point was liberation. The second point is consideration. Though the sons are free, Jesus teaches us to avoid giving unnecessary offense. If the sons are free, as Jesus says, then Jesus is not obligated to pay the tax, but he does it anyway And he says he does it to avoid giving offense. There's a lesson for us. Those who follow him are not called to give up their rights. But they must not insist on them to the hurt of others. There's a higher consideration for Jesus. And it has to do with consideration for others. Jesus gives offense. We've seen him do it throughout Matthew's gospel. Jesus gives offense when necessary. But only then. Only then. 
Back in 2018, uh, the actor-comedian Rowan Atkinson of Mr. Bean fame and uh, Blackadder gave a speech in which he extolled the virtue of offensiveness. Uh, It was entitled, Feel Free to Insult Me. And it was a defense of freedom of speech. You can Google this, and it's worth Googling because it's a good speech. But he says this, The clear problem with the outlawing of insult is that too many things can be interpreted as such. Criticism is easily construed as insult by certain parties. Ridicule, easily construed as insult. Sarcasm, unfavorable comparison, merely stating an alternative point of view to the orthodoxy can be interpreted as insult. And because so many things can be interpreted as insult, it is hardly surprising that so many things have been. The point that he's making is this, that even if you believe you're acting in a good cause by stifling freedom, that stifling ultimately backfires. We don't want to be offensive. We don't want to see other people's feelings hurt. But, he believes, we must guard against that censorious impulse to silence those insults because that freedom is necessary in order to communicate. Because the Christian message is one of those things that can be interpreted so easily as an insult, as an offense, it's not surprising that this is a sentiment that a lot of us can relate to. And if you do go and listen to the speech, I think you'll find yourself saying amen occasionally, uh, perhaps under your breath in a good Presbyterian way. And yet, Christianity teaches that freedom must be used responsibly. And that in the exercise of our freedom, we must be considerate towards those who are still in bondage, which is what Jesus is demonstrating to us in this example. In other words, we might join Rowan Atkinson in declaring, feel free to insult me. But as believers, we are not free to insult others. That's the difference. We are free to bear the insult, but we are not free to give the insult. We are free to receive the wound, but we are not free to deliver the wound. That's the difference. That's the discipline that Christ calls us to. If you doubt this, look at the example of the Apostle Paul. When he's before Felix in Acts 24, and he's forced to justify the Christian faith, here's how he describes that faith. He says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and And man. That idiom that's translated in the English Standard Version as having a clear conscience, if we were going to 
render that in sort of literal wooden English translating from the Greek, it would be something like a conscience without offense or in the King James Version, void of offense. Now Paul makes this point to explain why it is that when his accusers came for him, they found him in the temple. They found him purified in the temple, he says, having come to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. This despite the fact that Jesus had already fulfilled the temple system. Paul was still there doing these things. Like Jesus, Paul was fulfilling temple-related services, but not out of obligation. Not because he had to, but rather he did it so as not to cause unnecessary offense. In Romans chapter 14, and again in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul articulates this Christ-like principle in great depth. He explains why it is that a son who has been liberated might still observe practices whose meaning has been fulfilled so as not to give offense to weaker brothers. In other words, those who do not yet live in freedom. There is a consideration for those people that animates Jesus and animates Paul, and it needs to animate us as well. When we look at the world around us, what we should see is not enemies, not opponents, not people who just need someone to tell them some hard truth that they don't want to hear, but it's good for them, but someone who sees them as those who are still in bondage, someone who sympathizes with them as those who are not yet free. And whatever we say or do, we must always consider those who are not yet free, who remain in bondage, those who will not or even cannot understand why we say and do the things that we say or do. This doesn't mean that because of other people's sensitivities, we ought to be careful to keep silent. But it does mean that we ought to show consideration for one another, that we ought to show love to other people, regardless of whether or not they have the freedom that we possess. For the Christian, every freedom must be tempered by the principle that Jesus lives by here and that Paul lives by. Paul, who was determined, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Why? Why was this deeply intelligent man determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Not because he was an anti-intellectual who didn't value learning, but because he was determined that if he gave offense, he would give it for the right reason. That he would make it the offense of the cross and not the offense of Paul's opinions about everything else so that nothing could get in the way, nothing could obscure the gospel message. It was his way of making sure, in other words, that the offense of the cross, which must necessarily be given, wasn't obscured by other offenses that he could have avoided. If the world knows you for everything but the cross, if it knows what you think about everything but the cross, then it's time to reconnect with this self-disciplining principle. 
that Jesus teaches to Peter through this little episode in taxation. On the one hand, those who proclaim the cross receive, in a sense, a license to offend. It is inevitable that if you proclaim the cross, you will give offense. But when we follow Jesus, we cannot use that license without responsibility. We have to take into consideration the effect of the words we say and the things that we do. When we give offense, do it by proclaiming the cross, that glorifies God. It gives glory to God to offend people through the message of the cross. But when we avoid giving unnecessary offense, when we take into consideration the weakness of others, that also glorifies God because it shares in his consideration for those who remain in bondage. That's the sense in which we are free. We have been liberated from those old obligations, but we still continue to have this Let's call it a a duty to show consideration towards others. And the extent that we struggle to do this demonstrates how little we care about those who are not yet free. But when we see Jesus paying this tax, we recognize that Jesus did care. Jesus did care about not giving unnecessary offense. And his example calls us to repentance. It calls us to renewal. So that's the second point, consideration. The last point is this. There's no obligation. No obligation. In salvation, Jesus gives what he does not owe, not out of obligation, but out of love. This passage, if we reflect on it, does call us to action. It calls us to repentance. Or another way to put it is it recalls us to our mission because that consideration for those who are not yet free in Christ, that's part of the mission of the church. The love that we're meant to show in spreading the gospel, that is part of our mission. But this passage does more than call us to our mission. It also gives us a more glorious appreciation of the way that Jesus fulfilled his mission because Jesus is not just teaching us how to be He's showing us who he is and how he does things. But if the sons are free, as Jesus says, then Jesus gives what is not owed. Everything Jesus gives, he gives not out of obligation, but out of love. No one takes from Jesus, but Jesus gives freely everything he has. If you think about it, if there was anyone in Israel who had a right to refuse to pay the temple tax, surely it was Jesus. Jesus literally came to do away with the whole purpose of the temple by fulfilling it. Jesus came to, borrowing a word from the Westminster Confession, to abrogate the ceremonial law that was associated with the temple by fulfilling it by fulfilling the reality of the work that the temple existed just to picture. I'm going to share with you some things from the book of Hebrews, uh, a few chapters in Hebrews, and I would encourage you, if you have your Bible, to turn to them. In Hebrews chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, there's a long discourse about Jesus as a priest and the temple 
that Jesus makes his sacrifice in. And we won't be able to, to read all of it here. We'll look at a few aspects of it that are important for the point that we're making. But if you have any doubts that the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross was all of the work needed for your salvation, you need to read these chapters in Hebrews and meditate on them. If you think that there's still some sacrifice that needs to be made over and over again to roll back the effects of sin, then you need to read these chapters in Hebrews and reflect on what they actually say. In Hebrews 8, verse 2, Jesus is described as a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In contrast, in verse 5, earthly priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. But, jumping ahead to chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And look ahead to verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. In chapter 10, verse 9, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. In verse 14 of chapter 10, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. That's an incredible statement about the work of Jesus Christ as it relates to the true temple, not the copy made by human hands that needed taxes in order to maintain it, but the actual temple and the presence of God that that human temple was made in emulation of as a symbol or a sign of that higher reality. Jesus, in offering himself up one time, a single offering, has perfected, not will, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Think about the tenses that are used in that sentence. For those who are being sanctified, for those who are in the process of being made into the image of Christ, there is something that has already happened at the cross. And the way that the author of Hebrews describes the thing that has already happened to those people who are in that process, us believers, is that they have been perfected. But I thought what we were working towards was being perfected. I thought we were striving to be perfected, but no, he says at the cross, through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, they have been perfected. Those who are being sanctified were perfected at the cross. Just at the level of verb tenses, that's incomprehensibly glorious. The work that so many of us think we're struggling to perform was already done by Jesus Christ at the cross, and that's the significance of the atonement. 
But there's another thing that's clearer when you read the book of Hebrews, which is this, that uh, there could be no doubt that when Jesus pays the temple tax, he's not doing it out of obligation. When Jesus pays this tax, he's not doing it because somehow that physical building maintains a significance for him that he himself does not fulfill. Instead, he does it freely for the sake of those who are in bondage. And actually, that's how Jesus does everything that Jesus does. He does it freely. All the work of salvation, Jesus does with absolute freedom. He insists on that, that all of his work is undertaken in perfect freedom. Look at John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And when he explains what that means, he actually speaks to this point of freedom. He says, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says in John 10, verse 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So remember, at the beginning of Matthew 17, in the Transfiguration, the voice of the Father declares, I am well pleased in the Son. And Jesus explains that pleasure of the Father here in John chapter 10. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. In other words, for the atonement and the resurrection. For the work on the cross and the resurrection that follows. In other words, the exact things that Moses and Elijah spoke about when they conferred with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, at the end of Matthew 17, we've actually come full circle. Jesus teaches Peter that he's been liberated through sonship, yet he must show consideration. But if you think about that lesson, what does it actually mean? Jesus is saying that an act of self-sacrifice must be undertaken, not from obligation, but out of love for those who are in bondage. That's exactly what Jesus does. An act of self-sacrifice undertaken not from obligation, but out of love for those who are in bondage. Jesus, in teaching us how to follow him, is also giving us a deeper appreciation of what it is exactly that he has done for us. When you were still in bondage, Though he owed you nothing, out of love, the Son of God freely set his privileges aside and sacrificed himself for you, a single offering for all time that has perfected you. And he declares you sons and daughters, children of God. And if what Jesus says about you is true, that means that you are free, that you are free indeed. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. 
We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.